Last year, we weren't able to gather, and let me tell you, that was hard, <laughs> but today's a new day, and uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, for those of you that are visiting this morning, my name is Daniel, and I'm the lead pastor here. Can I just say, we're so glad to have you this morning. Come on, church, can we just welcome all our guests today? <laughs> Praise God. If this is your first time with us, I want to tell you, you came on a, on a good day. In fact, you came on the most important day of the year for us, because it's a time when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We celebrate the fact that he is not in the tomb, amen, but that he's alive, that he's at work in our lives. Now, we could ask this morning, why, why is that so important, Pastor? Well, Easter, understand this today, Easter celebrates why we exist as a church. You see, as Christians, we believe this, that our destiny is bound together with the destiny of Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection of Jesus is really, I would say it this way, it's a prophecy. If you look through the Old Testament scripture, if you read the words of the prophets, some great prophets like the prophet Isaiah, you see prophecies of the coming Messiah that we believe were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And, and here's the, the reality for us today. The resurrection of Jesus is also a prophecy. It's a prophecy foretelling for us that death is not the end. It tells us that life persists through death and actually emerges from it. You know, our world tells us that right now we are in the land of the living and we're headed for the land of the dead, but the truth of Scripture paints a very different picture, that we are in fact right now in the land of the dying and we're headed toward the land of true and eternal life. Christ's resurrection is a prophecy foretelling our resurrection if we are in Jesus Christ, if we belong to him. It's a prophecy, and at the same time, it's actually the source or the cause of our resurrection. Whenever I fly on an airplane, and it seems like such a long time since I've been on one, but whenever I fly, there are a few things I like to do. Usually, as soon as that plane starts to go up in the air, I lean back in my chair, and I take a good nap. And when I wake up, my wife's usually looking at me because she's upset that I slept and she didn't. But then I'll watch a movie, I'll read a book, but inevitably I find myself watching the flight tracker. How many of you watch that? The little flight tracker, it tells you where your plane started, where you are right now, and where you're going. And I want to take you, church, to a passage in the Bible this morning that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it is really a spiritual flight tracker. It displays for us where history has come from, where it's going, where it is right now, and ultimately who's flying the plane, okay? Who is in control? This history is not about the rise or fall of the Egyptian empire or the Greek empire or any other empire. Rather, it is a short history about the rise and fall of death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading there in verse 20 in just a moment. But before we read there... Let me give you a little context for what we're going to read this morning. Because earlier in this chapter, Paul had been playing the what-if game. Apparently, there were some in the church in Corinth who did not believe that anyone would be raised from the dead. Now, we, we don't know what their exact views were. They could have held a typical Greek view of the immortality of the soul and rejected any idea that the body would rise again. But Paul insists that the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is of central importance to us. 
And so Paul says this, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ was raised from the dead. In other words, if dead men don't rise, then Jesus Christ did not rise. And so he plays the what if game. You ever do that? What if? What if Christ was not raised from the dead? He says if Christ was not raised, our preaching of the gospel is useless. It's empty. It has nothing. It has no substance. If Christ was not raised, in fact, he says we are liars because we're proclaiming that he's raised from the dead. He says if Christ was not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. It is incapable of producing any results. Your faith is pointless. You are believing in a dead Christ. If Christ was not raised, then he says this, we as believers are still in our sins. We're living just like everyone else. You see, Jesus Christ dead without a resurrection would be a condemned and not a justified Christ. And if Christ was not justified, how could he justify us? But the last consequence concerns the fate of those who've passed away. You see, at that time for pagans, death was the end of everything. It was this adversary that would defeat everyone in the end. But for Christians, it was no more than sleep. But if Christ was not raised, then those that we say have fallen asleep haven't really fallen asleep. They are, in fact, dead. Now, now think about the dismal consequences of life without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants to turn away from this way of thinking really quickly, and instead he breaks into a burst of triumph there in verse 20. Are you with me? Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We say it this way, he is risen. Oh, you can do better than that. He is risen. So he says this is the fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. But, right, Paul turns away from this thinking of things, the what if. He says, now let's talk about things as they actually are. Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, and this resurrection made him the first fruits of all who will be raised. You see, before the Israelites harvested their crops, they were to bring the first of the crop called the first fruit, and they would bring it to the priest as an offering. It was a sign that the whole harvest belonged to God. And, and that's the point that Paul's making here. He says, Christ's own resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection harvest of all who belong to Christ. In his death and resurrection, Christ made an offering of himself to the Father on our behalf. You see, the first fruits not only preceded the harvest, they were actually a first installment of the harvest. And the fact that Christ was the first fruits indicates that the rest of the harvest, that's, that's all of us who belong to Christ, are going to follow. Christ's resurrection is the first part of a larger resurrection of those who have been redeemed by God. Amen? And so the rest of the harvest has put, been put temporarily on hold. Why? To allow for more and more people to be reaped for the kingdom of God. Think about it. Since Christ's resurrection assures us of a, of a future waking. It changes death into sleep, and that sleep, it doesn't mean unconsciousness any more than natural sleep does. It only means a rest from all of this toil that we go through every day. It, it, it means a, a, an end to the interaction with this crazy world that we live in. But understand this today, the righteous who have died, their spirits have gone on to be with the Lord. 
but their remains are in the grave. They are awaiting resurrection. Their spirit and their soul are alive, but their body is asleep. Verse 21, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Paul here is contrasting Adam with Christ. He he continues to explain this, how the resurrection of Christ affects believers. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Through Adam, the first man, death entered history. And so the seed of every man and woman to be born, it, it, it was present in Adam so that all people owe their life. We all owe our physical descent to that man. And because of his sin, Adam's seed, that's every one of us, we are all infected with a virus way more fatal than COVID, right? It's a virus called death, so that all people must die. Now, no one argues that fact, right? In fact, we say there are two things that are certain, death and taxes, right? You got a delay on your taxes, okay? But we know it, right? No one argues with the fact that that's coming for us all. And so, yes, there is this cause and effect relationship between Adam and those who are his seed, his descendants. But understand this today, in the same way there is a cause and effect relationship between Christ and those who are his seed. Christ is the first. And he's the first of a new nature of people. Since Christ is the first man of a a new righteous nature, he has been raised from the dead, making it possible the resurrection from the dead for those who believe. Verse 22 is this convincing analogy of how these two lives affect us as believers today. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ, I encourage you to underline those words, belongs to Christ, will be given new life. Amen. Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. He's writing again about the history of death. He gives us its beginning, but he also says there is an end to this. Death began with Adam. He introduced it into the world, but death ends with Christ. He will abolish it once forever because Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why we celebrate on Easter, right? That's why we celebrate because he has been raised. All will be raised alive on the last day. Just as Adam was the predecessor of everyone who dies, so Christ is the predecessor of everyone who will be raised to life. In both cases, it's one man doing one act, and the consequences of that act are applied to every person identified with him. Those who are identified with Adam, again, who is that? It's every person who's ever been born, right? Everyone is subject to death because of Adam's sinful act, but in the same way, those who are identified with Christ, who's that? It's every person who has been born again in him. Everyone who has been born again is subject to resurrection, to eternal life because of Christ's righteous act on the cross. In Adam, all inherited a sin nature and therefore will die. But in Christ, all who believe in him have inherited eternal life and shall be made alive, amen, in body and in spirit. Romans 5, 19 says this, because one person disobeyed God, who was that? That was Adam. Many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, who's that? Jesus, right? Nine times out of ten, that's the right answer in church. Jesus. 
many will be made righteous. I want you to understand someday when we go to heaven, we're not just going to be some spirits that are, that are floating around in the sky, and, and we're not going to be angels. We're going to have new bodies. We're going to have resurrected bodies. Michael Faraday, an English chemist, a, a physicist, was a devout Christian. He was born in 1791, and Faraday discovered the principle of electromagnetic induction. Basically, it's the basis for the electric generator, the electric motor. And one day he was in his shop and he was working with a workman who knocked his beautiful silver cup into a, a strong jar of acid. And the cup just quickly dissolved in that acid. But Faraday said, hold on a moment. He got some chemicals and he poured it in there and he saw that disintegrated silver all of a sudden settle at the bottom. He scooped out that shapeless mass and he sent it away to the silversmith and a few hours later he had the cup back restored, shining as beautiful as ever. I want to tell you today, if Faraday and the silversmith could do that to a dissolved silver cup, cannot God give us a new body at the resurrection? Amen? He can give us a new body at the resurrection. Now, the occurrences of the resurrection are indicated there in verse 23. Look at it. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Again, Christ is the first fruits of those who, who are Christ at his coming. We are the full harvest. Christ's resurrection is an accomplished fact in history. It took place. But still in the future, there is another historical event. It's Christ coming, his return. And we don't know, in fact, we're told we cannot know when the Lord is coming again. But at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that is, those who are asleep in him, will, as he was, be raised from the dead. Verse 24, after that, the end will come. When he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ's final act will be to conquer permanently every enemy of God, as verse 25 says. But he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The resurrected Christ understand this, will eventually conquer all evil, all promoters of evil, all the enemies of God will be abolished, never to exist again, never to oppose God or to deceive or to mislead or to threaten the people of God or any of creation. The victory expressed in the language of, of Psalm 110.1 in the Old Testament is this the most quoted text in the New Testament. He has put all his enemies under his feet. Understand, in ancient times, kings and emperors would sit on a throne that was above their subjects. And so when the subjects came and bowed, they were literally under the feet, or they were lower than the feet of the ruler. With enemies, a, a king would often literally put his foot on the neck of a conquered general, symbolizing the enemy's total subjugation. Right now, Christ is exercising his kingly rule by abolishing those powers through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of himself crucified and risen, through the gospel message, understand today, sins are forgiven. Through the gospel message, those who were formerly in bondage are set free from the powers of darkness, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they are brought under the dominion of Jesus Christ. 
Winston Churchill planned out his own funeral. It took place at St. Paul's Cathedral, and he included in the plans many great hymns of the church. He, he used some eloquent liturgy in his funeral, and at the same time, he gave a direction that there should be a bugler that would be positioned in the dome of St. Paul's, and after the benediction, he was to play the sound of taps. You know that? It's the, the universal signal that says, man, the day is over. But as soon as that tune was played, there came a dramatic turn. See, just as Churchill had instructed that taps was to be played, he said, after taps, I want another bugler placed on the other side of the great dome to play the notes of revelry. You know that one? It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. This was Churchill's testimony, that at the end of history, the last note will not be taps. It will be revelry. It will be revelry, amen? You see, the worst thing is no longer death for those who know him who is life. Death as a personification, as Christ's ultimate opponent in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last evil, both of God and of man, to be abolished forever will be death. Revelation 20, 14 tells of death being destroyed. All things will truly be under Christ's feet. And here's what the spiritual flight tracker is telling us. It's telling us this, that death is presently being abolished. Right now, because of the risen Christ, he is reigning right now as king. Death is presently being abolished as men and women hear the gospel of his death and resurrection and begin to now belong to him. But death will finally and effectually be defeated at the last judgment. For those who are in Christ, his resurrection has already defeated death. Christ broke the power of Satan, him who had the power of death at the cross. But Satan and death will not be permanently abolished until the end. We know this today, the victory was won on Calvary, amen? That's why Good Friday was so good. But the eternal peace and righteousness that Christ's victory guarantees will not be completed until all his enemies who were conquered are also banished and abolished. The last enemy is death, which with all other enemies will be abolished. In past generations, smallpox was the feared disease, right? It wasn't COVID, and it was far more dangerous. I was reading this week that it killed hundreds of millions of people it scarred and it blinded many more. It was, it was highly infectious. It was contracted by breathing the ex exhaled breath of an infected person. At one time, there was no cure for smallpox in the world. During the Middle Ages, smallpox epidemics raged throughout much of Asia and Africa and Europe. In, in some wars, more soldiers died from smallpox than from combat. But in 1796, an English physician named Edward Jenner, he developed the first smallpox vaccine, and that vaccination soon began to spread throughout the world. By 1978, the World Health Organization announced that the world's last known case of naturally occurring smallpox was in Somalia, October 1977. In 1980, they formally announced that smallpox has been eliminated. And then in December 1994, a committee from the World Health Organization unanimously voted to destroy the last stock of the smallpox virus. For some reason, they were keeping it in a freezer somewhere. I said, why are you doing that, right? But in public health's greatest triumph, the smallpox virus 
would be completely eradicated from the earth, never to torment mankind again. It's hard to imagine that such a deadly disease could be completely annihilated. But it's even harder to imagine a world completely cleansed of sin and death and evil, right? But, but think about this, church. We are assured that one day God will judge the earth. And, and by the authority of Christ, sin and death, that evil will be thrown into the lake of fire. God will create a, a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. There will be no more death, no more tears. Christ will have won the final victory. And then his final work having been accomplished, Christ delivers up the kingdom to God the Father. Verse 27, for the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. The kingdom that Christ delivers up will be a redeemed place that is indwelled by a redeemed people. Both nature and those who've become eternal subjects of the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to live in perfect peace, perfect contentment, perfect fulfillment. Verse 28 tells us what will occur when all creation has been restored, then when all things are under his authority. The son himself will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly, of this, utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. God will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. That's what our, our future looks like, church. You see, it was the humility and obedience of Christ that was shown in his incarnation, that was shown in his death on the cross. It will also be shown in his voluntary subjugation to the Father once his work is complete. Now understand, Christ is not inferior to the Father, but his work is to defeat all evil on earth. God's work is to be absolutely sovereign over all eternity. Sir Walter Raleigh was an English soldier, he was an explorer, he was a writer, he was a businessman. Raleigh is, is famous for his uh, gallantry to Queen Elizabeth I. In 1581, Raleigh was visiting Queen Elizabeth at her court and they were out walking one day and they came to a large mud puddle and as everybody knows, Raleigh takes off his coat and he places it over the mud puddle for the queen to walk on. Now, and now it said that story was most likely not true, but it is true that Queen, he, queen Elizabeth really loved Sir Walter Raleigh. In fact, she gave him a 12,000-acre estate in Ireland. However, Raleigh fell into disfavor with the queen when he married one of her maids of honor. And so he tried to redeem himself with the queen. He traveled to Guyana in South America to search for El Dorado, the, the lost city of gold. And King James imprisoned Raleigh after the death of Elizabeth in 1603. Raleigh lived for 12 years in the, in the Tower of London. He was released in 1616, and he made a, another trip to South America to search again for the lost city of gold. But he was commanded by the king at that time that if he's to go there, he's not to attack the Spaniards who were already there. But his men went, and they disobeyed, and they attacked. And so when Raleigh returned to London, he was sentenced to death for disobeying orders. But it's said that he met his fate very calmly. He met it even jokingly with the executioner. It said that Raleigh laid his head on the chopping block and he gave the signal for the axe to fall. But after Raleigh was beheaded, they found his Bible in the Tower of London in which he had written his epitaph the night before his death. He wrote these words, Even such is time, 
that takes in trust our youth, our joys, or all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. Why is the resurrection of Christ central? Because our resurrection is a consequence of our union with Jesus Christ. He has conquered all for us, amen? He's conquered all for us. Jesus entered the prison house of the grave and he came forth bearing its iron gates on his shoulders and now it cannot hold us either. And I want to tell you today, if you follow him, Jesus will make you a partaker of his own immortal life. And so the most important question of life is have you united your life with his life? If you are united with Christ in life, you will be united with him in death, meaning just as the grave could not hold him, it will not hold you either. Have you united your life with Christ? If you long today for redemption from sins, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your faith fully in what he has accomplished for you. Repent, turn from your, from your sins, turn from your decision to, to do things your own way and instead begin to follow Jesus. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You see, this is how you enjoy a relationship with God, how you enjoy a relationship with Jesus himself, how you enter into his spiritual body by recognizing him as your savior, by turning from your disobedience to God. And if you do this, his life will give you life. You will conquer death through his death. You see, there are basically two resurrections that are yet to come. The first is the resurrection of Christ's servants, and then there's the resurrection of all others. And they're not the same, I have to tell you that this morning. In fact, they're, they're awfully different in outcome. Some shall wake to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting judgment. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to encourage you before we leave this place, if you haven't done it already, to humble yourself before God, to trust in him, to trust in what Jesus has done for you. And then in due time, he will be the life of your transformed body. Remember this today, that death entered the world because of one man doing one act. And the consequences of that act are applied to everyone identified with him. We're all identified with Adam, therefore we will all die. But if you are identified with Christ, if you follow after him, then his resurrection foretells your resurrection to eternal life. At the end of history, as we know it, I pray that the last note for you will not be taps, but it will be revelry. Let's worship him before we leave this place. Amen.